0: that there had never been a single case of cancer in human history that had been caused by a lack of chemotherapy. The realization was that no matter how good I got at making chemotherapy, I would never prevent a single case of cancer in my entire career. I would actually never step in to cure a cancer because to cure a disease, you would have to step in at the very cause of why it developed. And so this woman helped me totally challenge my whole worldview. This week's podcast is
1: with... Someone who we've admired for years and listened to consistently. And we actually flew to Italy to a few years ago to meet. Yeah, we went over to uh, Rich was a friend Rich was doing a retreat in Tuscany. And I remember we only heard that Zach was coming a few days prior. We managed to somehow organise. We rich, we were coming over to do a demo. And the main reason we were doing it was because we wanted to meet Zach. Uh, phenomenal guy, has this remarkable capacity to just relate information and just stream it out. And I remember... We walked into the room that first night, there was a concert pianist playing and he played amazing music and then he finished and he said, would anyone else like to come up to play? And the room kind of went quietly and Zach just said, sure, I'll go. up. And he played just as well as the pianist. And it was like, oh my God. And then we were there and he was speaking a different language and just a remarkable human being that has this immense capacity to link what can seem in- unrelatable. Yeah, 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 and he's been someone we admired in terms of the way he talks about our food systems, about the soil, about microbiome, about health, and really this was a conversation which we've been wanting to have for years. And there's so much in this. I'm gonna have to listen to this plenty more times because my puny little brain didn't be wasn't able to compute every bit of it. I, I can totally <laughs> relate to you. However, we did cover the really importance of microbiome, how our intelligence is directly relate our intelligence and our ability to compute information beyond our own ego is the ability is, is directly in connection with nature it was really so important like those were the basic takeaways that I got like nature 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 and humans and biodiversity and there's an, fa- there's an incredible monologue if you can stay tuned to the end there's this incredible finish that's so beautiful and kind of sums up you know hope. that if that if you've ever listened to any of Zach Bush's fo- podcasts he is an expert at rounding things up and leaving people with a nice fuzzy feeling so, so put your helmet on This is mind-blowing. Stay tuned. Enjoy it. Check Zach out. He's phenomenal. Yeah. And once again, thanks for all the support in the podcast and for letting us know what you think on social. We really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Jeez, where are you now, Zach?
0: Uh, Right now I'm in Virginia, Charlottesville, Virginia, middle of the state, about an hour and a half south of Washington, D.C., about six hours west of you guys. Looks nice and sunny. Yeah, we got some beautiful spring summer going on here for sure. This is one of my favorite times of year in the, in the Blue Ridge Mountains here is what we call these mountains along our our area here. And it's pretty stunning. One of the one of the most beautiful four-season environments that you can be in.
1: We, we spent, 20 years ago, we spent a number of months in Virginia. I think it was West Virginia. Oh, we were in West Virginia. We were building a oh, yeah. straw bale house. We were building a straw bale house. A friend had bought a plot of land with water on it with a spring on it and he wanted to build his own little kind of reserve independent of what was going on in the world and we helped him build a straw bale house and it was very he was a super environmentalist person and we ended up helping yeah. him and we, we ended up spending time in Gesundheit which was near there that's north do you know yeah. that was yeah, yeah we ended up Steve you spent a a catch Adams there. I spent a bit a month there
0: oh what a wonderful time what a character he is yeah <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah he was nuts he was wonderful very yeah uh, an you guys fitting right in Yeah, 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 we got on pretty well. I actually, last weekend when we were there for that month, like I had hitchhiked up from Mexico and I arrived and I remember one of the exercises was to write a letter to yourself for five years time. And I found it like 20 years later, I just found it at the weekend and I was reading it. And I'd ask myself all these questions like, are you drinking lots of organic carrot juice? Are you cycling? Because cycling is a much more sustainable means of transport. And all these questions like from 20 years ago, you know, when you're a total idealist, it was, I really enjoyed it. Me and my daughter read it and she was laughing at me. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it you, was you good, never lost your zeal and your passion and your intensity for life I'm, I'm glad to see that
1: no it was very much evidence things hadn't really changed <laughs> oh, yeah. Time yeah. Was the <laughs> i hadn't only... really grown up that much no <laughs>
0: definitely not yeah, that's beautiful and how's life well, like you zach uh, i just wanted to just thank you both it's been such a fun couple of years getting to know you through instagram and all that we had such a fun time meeting in person in italy of course but I feel like every day that I get to, to glimpse what you guys are up to, it's just like this incredibly refreshing drink just to to get the happy pair going in my life every day. Instagram is just a great connection for us. But I, I love what you guys are doing for the community out there with your morning swims. And those sunrises are just second to none. I, I don't know where exactly you guys are on the coast there that capture that color of the sky that you get so often. But I just wanted to tell you that it's blessing me over here in the states often so oh,
1: thanks, zach you'll have to come when you come and visit we'll go swim you'll appreciate that how cold it actually is beneath those two-dimensional uh it's photographs I, I, I think
0: you know part of me likes the two-dimensional experience as you start to talk about the cold water but uh i'll see how i do <laughs>
1: I, I love it. it. I love it. Right. So we start this. Part. Okay, written, I get, I, I we know we don't. We don't have I, that. I want to start with a nice one just to get going. Zach, if you were to describe yourself as a fruit or vegetable, what would you pick and why? Oh, really deep philosophical one now. Stephen's gone in with the big ones first.
0: Yeah, this is, this is, a, this is a big one. I think that I'm going to go with a daikon radish. Ooh, Ooh. long
1: route. Big, long root,
0: deep deep sink into the good dirt the most the most surface area of any root vegetable you know just dig right in there uh in uh, north dakota we were shooting this documentary on, on regen farming and it was ridiculously cold it was like minus nine degrees wind was blowing wind chill was minus 45 it was just frigid inhumane area and we were filming these farmers out with their cattle on this frozen earth there was not much snow but it was just like you know blowing you know kind of sleety weather uh, in this freezing cold and this cow came running across the field with this face of just like look of joy on his face and he had just pulled this huge daikon radish out of the frozen earth and was chewing away and so from that moment on daikon kind of landed warm in my heart just knowing that <laughs> These deep root vegetables are, are capable of sustaining life through through frigid temperatures and through desolate environments. And so I hope that I'm a, a deep root vegetable for humanity that can nourish the, nourish the good world.
1: Good answer. Zach Bush. Profermed. That's very good. I Wonderful. Like 10 out of 10, Zach. Um, <laughs> so right now we're writing a new book. And the last couple of weeks we've spent a while researching our food system. We've, probably, we've been working in it closely. Uh, for about 20 years now, and it's become quite apparent to me that, you know, modern day industrial farming is eroding our soils, a lot of, you know, excessive antibiotic use is eroding our microbiome, as a species that are mammals, we're very detached from our natural environment, and it's affecting our health and the health of our planet. I wonder, can you talk about the link between good health, the importance of our soil, and our overall health?
0: Yeah, we are at one of the Shift most of
1: gears ex- there, Steve.
0: <laughs> I would expect nothing less of you. Uh, this is one of the most extraordinary paradigm shifts, you know, revolutions in scientific thought, scientific paradigms that we've seen in human history when we start to talk about the microbiome. I, I can compare this to maybe 2000 years ago when Pythagoras discovered that the earth was not flat, it was actually a, a ball floating in space and it made no sense to anybody at the time. It was obvious if you were on the bottom of the ball, you would fall off the ball. So there was there was just no sense of, of understanding the earth as a sphere. And that revolution still remains, right? We have a large, vibrant, flat earth society 2000 years later that's convinced that the earth is still flat. and so. When you have these paradigm shifts in science, there remains huge factions and huge huge uh, discordance between the the new discovery and the the paradigm in which the current environment will practice or or think and so I'd say maybe sixteen hundred years later, after Pythagoras we see. You know, the discovery of the telescope, and suddenly we're told that Earth is not at the center of the universe, which was very disruptive to science, disruptive to, perhaps more importantly, religion. And that started to dawn on us that we might not be the penultimate creation of God, and we it was disruptive across the board. And certainly if you walk into a lot of conservative religious environments today, they recoil from the idea that we're not the penultimate invention of, of, you know, of God here, and that there may be something more intelligent than us in the universe is hard for us to handle still. But now we come to this revolution of the microbiome. And what happened is we moved from, you know, geometry 2000 years ago to the telescope 400 years ago, to really genomic sequencing as the new technological breakthrough in the last 30 years that's allowed us to start to decode the origin of life and specifically the origin of life within us. We really believed that the DNA that we would inherit from mom and dad were the the template for life. They they would predict all of the diseases we would get. They would predict the health we would have. They would predict the color of our eyes. All of these things were really programmed, hardwired into that DNA we got from mom and dad. That was the, the status quo starting in the 1950s, when we discovered DNA initially and all of this. But then the genetic sequencers came into the picture. And by 1996, we realized that the human only had 20,000 genes. This was extremely disappointing because we already knew that the flea had 30,000 genes. And so to find out we were two thirds as good as a, a flea at the genetic level was really dismal news. And what has then had to be born out of that information is that we are actually epigenetically programmed by our environment. And so the bodies and health that we build today are not actually inherited from mom and dad. It is actually the input of the microbiome, the air we breathe, the genomics of our food, the genomics of those that we spend time with. We are all programming one another to become who we are today. And amazingly, as we start to decode the input into that genetic plasticity of the human environment, we find that the microbiome, the bacteria, the fungi, the protozoa and even the viruses, in and, and all of their uh, complexity, and, and they're not part of the microbiome. They're, they're just a genetic transfer system between species. But in all of this, we find that the human is this tiny, tiny percentage of life within us. And so this is the revolution we are now in, is that to be human is to be an ecosystem. And to find that the human cell is not at the center of human health is really overwhelming. And it, it it's no wonder that in this pandemic that we're currently finishing up, we are stuck in an old narrative. We're stuck in a narrative of viruses are attacking us, and we know viruses are not attacking us at the science level. We've known for thirty years that viruses actually built humans. More than fifty percent of the genes that I have inherited from my parents were inserted into the human and the mammalian genome millions of years back. And so the origin of of mammals a few million years back, the origin of humanity 200,000 brief years ago, all of that became possible because of the gain of function allowed by viruses and their ability to always be looking for adaptation and biodiversification of life on earth. And so this is the revolution we're in. And so now if we back into your question, which was what's the relationship between antibiotics in the form of herbicides and pesticides and all of this in our food, It's literally undermining the very vitality, the very heart and center of the biology of what it means to be human, to consume antibiotics through our food, to consume these chemicals that destroy the soil systems and therefore the food system and therefore our gut microbiome that should be the organic garden that would not only birth the nutrients, but actually birth the genetic information from our microbiome and the rest that would transform our bodies today into the vitality we have. And so a chemical herbicide based chemical agricultural system is the fundamental root cause of the the extinction event that we now find ourselves in. Wow.
1: In terms of in terms of I was watching your clip on farmer's footprint, and I just wonder if you could talk briefly about. How you as a medically trained doctor started to realise that at a deeper level, if we don't start addressing the symptoms of illness, which is coming from the very food we eat, which is coming from the very soil that the food grows in. Can you talk about the journey, how you got involved in Farmer's Footprint and started to really understand the importance of soil biodiversity for us to have healthy food and a healthy planet? Yeah, the journey
0: happened through uh, my transition. So I was an interim medicine physician with an expertise in endocrinology and metabolism, which means that I was seeing a lot of diabetes and metabolic disorders, autoimmune diseases, a lot of bone disorders. I was uh, specialized in pituitary tumors, you know, all all kinds of diseases around this whole communication network of the body uh, that we call the endocrine system. And uh, in that journey, uh, I had transitioned my research into chemotherapy development. So I was developing chemotherapy to kill cancer cells, and I was working on vitamin A compounds as a novel approach to killing cancer. And I literally was doing this for three years before it dawned on me that vitamin A was something coming from a carrot or, you know, her food, you know, I was in such a pharmaceutical uh, training and such a pharmaceutical mindset that I never used the term vitamin A. I was studying retinoic acids and unique, you know, chemical synthetic versions of retinoic acids. And so I was just, I was a retinoic acid scientist. I was not a vitamin A scientist, right? And so this is the way in which We get separated from the big picture as we get given so much minutia and we're given such a different lexicon as researchers, as scientists, that we lose the force for the trees. But I was in my my first clinical trial with this chemotherapy that I had developed and it was super exciting because it was relatively non-toxic. It was a retinoid. And I was treating uh, a, a metastatic version of an endocrine tumor that had no therapy to it. It was really kind of a death sentence, and so it was kind of going to be a novel, you know, much needed treatment for the very small fraction of humanity that has these tumors. And so I was in my very heady days of being a scientist, of like, my God, I've come up with this massive you know realization, and I, I'm going to transform these people's lives and I sat by the bedside of the woman who was gonna be the very first one in the clinical trial to take this drug. And the nurse came in under, I, it surprised me too. I didn't know what to expect, but the the research nurse came into the research institute, which is like a its own wing of the hospital in like protective garb, gloves, mask, holding these two pills in her hand and, and so as not to touch the pills. And the woman sitting next to me is watching this, nurse coming at her and she and the nurse says you know you're going to put these two things in your mouth and the woman's looking at me like I'm insane she's like that woman is terrified to even like breathe the air of those pills like why am i going to put those in my body right now and we went into this deep 45 minute intense discussion around you know the safety of it and i was trying to give her all the science and she kept asking you know a very frustrating question which was how is this going to help my cancer and so I would go into this discussion about how apoptosis and programmed cell suicide all these complicated science things and all that. And she said, but how does this help what, the cancer? How, how come I have cancer? And, and is this getting at why I have cancer? And the more she kept repeating this, the more I realized that there had never been a single case of cancer in human history that had been caused by a lack of chemotherapy. The realization was that no matter how good I got at making chemotherapy, I would never prevent a single case of cancer in my entire career. I would actually never step in to cure a cancer because to cure a disease, you would have to step in at the very cause of why it developed. And so this woman helped me totally challenge my whole worldview. And she ended up swallowing those tablets, was totally fine. Obviously, it was a relatively benign thing that she swallowed. But the journey of, of getting her to swallow those pills for me transformed my life. And unfortunately for her, I think I broke her. And that, you know, I felt like a good doctor because I had given her all this. But her intuition was not to put those tablets in her mouth. Her intuition was that there was another cause for her cancer. There was another path that she could have taken. And I wore her down over a 45-minute period and broke her, her in her instinct. I broke her intuition not to take those tablets. And when she swallowed those, I think it was probably the worst day of my life as a physician. I think it was the moment I, I realized that I was breaking human beings' intuition to, to follow my pharmaceutical pathway. And so that was a big turning point in my life. In the days and weeks that followed that I realized that I was part of a machine that was separating humanity from their intuitive knowledge of where disease comes from and perhaps a path that could get them out of that. And so I left the university in 2010. I tried to start a nutrition center for reversing chronic disease at, at the University of Virginia. And ironically, it was the dietitians that came up against my plan. They, they, they took down the plan because I was trying to teach a plant-based diet to reverse chronic disease. And the plant-based diet doesn't fit into the traditional food pyramid that the dietitians had been trained to teach our patients. And so they felt like I was undermining their very you know niche of expertise within this hospital system. And so, ironically, it wasn't the chemotherapy doctors that didn't want nutrition; it was the dietitians that didn't want nutrition <laughs> to be taught in, in this hospital in this new way. So, had to leave the university, and I ended up setting out in rural Virginia. You guys spent some time at the uh, uh facility out in West Virginia, and uh, you remember how important food was, you know, to Patch Adams. Thing, and in addition to the laughter and everything else, he really rooted into. To the nutrition story well and so there's certainly shiny examples over the last few decades of of people who through humor or otherwise found themselves to plant-based medicine and so i set up in this rural virginia town 550 people serving a county of about 40,000 people that were second third fourth generation poverty uh, and had a total food desert there was no grocery stores most of them were eating out of uh, uh gas station kind of uh, service stations for their fast food and things like this and then they would drive once a week up up to another county to to stock up on refined carbs from walmart or, or costco or these giant you know box stores and so they were in an utter food desert and so i think subconsciously that was the only place that i felt any confidence to teach nutrition would be a food desert like that and so i set up in this food desert and in those first couple of months of I was so excited. I, I was empowered with all this research out of Cleveland Clinic and uh, Cornell, all this dietary nutrition science around uh, plant-based medicine and, and you know, vegan diets were were in the mix somewhere in there too. But we were just like, you know, practicing this high medicinal state of medicine. And I was seeing miracles happen for the first time in my career, seeing them happen routinely. So, you know, see 30% of your diabetics just dissolve the diabetes in a matter of weeks was unbelievable to me. I, I had just no idea that it was possible. Uh, and you know, was watching these miracles happen. But two years in, it was pretty clear that that was the minority. It was about 30, 40% of my patients responding to a plant-based diet. And then there was a you know, another 30 or 40% that seemed to be getting worse on a plant-based diet, which was very against the science of the time. Um, I was, know got to the point where I just was blaming the patients. You must not be juicing enough kale. You must not be doing what I'm telling you to do. You must be sneaking, you know, candy bars on the side or something like this. And so I blamed them for quite a while. But one thing that happens when you're a full-time doctor, which doesn't happen when you're at a university, as a university, you're never fully responsible for anybody. And you come in for a few minutes and you act like a God and do your thing, but you never really know your patients when you're at a university. But when you're a country doctor, you end up knowing three generations of that family and you're treating everything from, you know, the sniffles and asthma and the kid to, you know, the, the grandma who's getting her leg amputated for diabetes. You're, you're in the midst of all of this. And you're steeped in. And so after a couple of years, I started to trust these people like family. I knew them so well. And I saw the beauty of uh, people who live in poverty. They, they have a resilience to them. They have an honesty to them that I think is really lacking in more affluent communities. And so I got to the point where I was starting to really trust these people. And when they told me they were doing what I asked them to do and they were still getting worse, I had to start taking that seriously. And in that journey of understanding why kale could make somebody more inflamed, more more gut distension, more dysbiosis, more you know pain and inflammation in their body, worsening kidney disease, that's where I started to realize you know that I didn't have the whole story on kale, and so it, kale was literally the, the the vegetable that took me into the whole you know food systems, and I found out very quickly that kale was no longer carrying the medicine that we thought it was, that, that it was missing the alkaloids that were the anti-inflammatories and everything else that we would look to all of the cruciferous vegetables for was lacking in this kale that was grown through conventional methods. And as I dove into soil science, me and uh, a number of colleagues, uh, John Gilday, who was a PhD at, at University of Virginia, brilliant uh, biochemist, uh, he really did the heavy lifting on understanding the impact of glyphosate or Roundup within the kale. And what we came to realize is that this chemical that has become ubiquitous in our farming industry was blocking the enzyme pathways by which the medicine ends up in the food. And so starting in the 1990s, we started pouring this chemical in massive quantities into our food system, deleting out the medicine within our food. And for the first time in 2000 years, Pythagoras would be wrong. Let thy food be thy medicine was his, uh, or not Pythagoras, uh, Hippocrates. And Hippocrates uh, was right for all those years until we suddenly utilized chemical farming to delete that medicine out of the food. And then on top of that, the same chemical that would remove the the medicine would destroy our barriers, our boundary systems for our immune system. And so glyphosate or Roundup destroys the the tight junctions between our gut microbiome and our nutrients and our immune system. And so with the dissolving of that, that barrier, everything starts to overwhelm the human immune system. And so the kale that I was feeding my patients was lacking the anti-inflammatories in the medicine and was acting as an inflammatory agent because the insoluble fiber in, in the kale should have never gotten into their immune system. But because it was carrying so much glyphosate in it, it was destroying that gut lining and opening it up. And so in a bizarre way, these patients were finding that I, you know, we could take what should be one of the the most powerful anti-cancer compounds in the world through a conventional farm system, nutrient chemical, you know, exposure, we could turn it into a toxin. And that was the sobering moment when I realized that uh, I would never solve the problem as a physician. I was going to have to get involved in the food system. Wow. That's yeah. Wow. Because
1: because kale, like kale is one of the most nutritious of all vegetables. I remember you were telling me during the week that it's actually the bacteria on kale that makes kale super you healthy. our microbiome that break it down. In essence, it's not we who eat it; it's our bacteria who eat it, and we eat off the short chain fatty acids which they produce, and the other byproduct. Um, wow so uh, well, that's And
0: That's exactly right, and that's actually the case with the vast majority of our food. And the nutrition sciences haven't caught up with that. You know if. If you go to an endocrinologist right now and are diagnosed with low bone mineral density or osteopenia or osteoporosis, they're, they're going to say, "Oh, you have low calcium in your bone. You should, you should drink milk because it has calcium." <laughs> and so today, a, a scientist will, will make the, or a physician will make the assumption that the calcium in milk will somehow magically show up in your bones. And we now know that that, that doesn't happen at all. Every nutrient has to go through this extraordinary journey of breakdown or metabolism by the microbiome, and then it needs to be fed in a very specific way to our liver cells that then would pass on a nutrient base that looks radically different than the food that was just on the plate that would then go into our bloodstream. And through the bloodstream, it would then be absorbed by the tissue into the microbiome inside our cells, which are called mitochondria. Mitochondria are are, uh, archaea, which are ancient bacteria. The very first bacteria show up on the planet four billion years ago were the archaea and an ancient archaea ultimately absorbed a methane producing small bacterium to produce the first mitochondria and the moment the first mitochondria existed some three and a half billion years ago we started to get the potential to have multicellular life and so the fungi emerged from that and so we started to have fungi um, and the the fungi would be the first to have those those mitochondrion looking things when in a plant we call them plastids instead of mitochondria, but they're the same thing, double walled bacterium that produces energy in different ways and then the, and then that would lead to the 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 development of plant life. and so the ferns and and the the mosses and all of this would develop out of that that kingdom of multicellular life because The mitochondrion could produce energy at 10x that of fermentation. So before the mitochondrion, we had to depend on fermentation to produce energy. But when you have oxygen uh, or respiratory metabolism, as you do in a mitochondrion, you get this 10x energy potential. And that's how much energy it takes to coordinate life in a multicellular creature, whether you be a plant, an earthworm, or a human. You take an enormous amount of light energy to mobilize and animate the body you live in. And so to get that light energy into the body, you have to have an enormous amount of sunlight in the food that you eat. And so the sun hits the surface of kale and it works through plant plastids through to take that light energy from the sun and build carbon chains. And so these complex carbon chains are made that we call complex carbohydrates or fatty acids, fat and fat and sugar are the same thing. They're carbon chains. And so the long fat or carbohydrate chains are built through sunshine, the electromagnetic field of the sun, combined with CO2. And so CO2 is another thing that's been vilified that as if it's causing global warming. CO2 is literally the fuel for biology on the planet. It is not the enemy. It is the source of life. So we can get to that later. But Whoa. CO2 converts with sunlight into carbohydrates and fats through the intelligence of this mitochondrion inside of those, those plant plastids there and as we eat those we depend then on this translation of energy from plant to bacterium from bacterium to human cell from human cell all the way on to our mitochondrion and it's only the mitochondrion that know how to translate the carbohydrate back into sunlight and so it's a beautiful journey of sun into mit- the plant plastid of the kale releasing through mitochondria inside our cells so that we can have the energy to do all the work that we would do enzyme work you know, the, the mechanics of, of cellular transport, all these things run off of, of light energy. And so as we do this, you know, sunlight transfer, we're fully dependent on this journey through the, the plastids and mitochondrion. And when you look at how much energy is produced, it starts to give you a sense of just how miraculous life is. A cubic centimeter of, of mitochondrion can produce about 10,000 times more energy than a cubic centimeter of the surface of our sun. It is 10,000 times more energetically potent than the radioactive you know, activity on the surface of the sun. And so we are a literal star energy being produced by the microbiome within us. And so when we think about kale or we think about you know, needing calcium in the bone, we need to stop thinking about macronutrients and we need to start thinking about where is the most energetic sources for these things and how do we get energy transfer to happen? So it's no longer how much calcium can we get into the bone? It's how much energy can we can get into the bone. And that changes the discussion because drinking a glass of milk actually will never get to the bone if you're sitting still. You know, and so you, you've you got to start to get, you know, it turns out of course, kale has a ton of calcium in it and things like that. All of your greens are great sources of calcium, but even those will not get their nutrients into bone unless the bone is demanding energy exchange, which means it needs exercise and movement. And and so instead of believing that suddenly that kale or glass milk turns into bone, we need to think more broadly about the concept of nutrition. Nutrition ultimately is about the movement of energy through living systems. And to do that, you need to begin moving and you need to be in movement or a dance with this complex microbiome within you. And this is, again, the revolution is that, you know, here we thought human health was super important, but we find out that. You know, 10x the human cells in your body are the, are the microbes, the bacteria and fungi in your gut and skin and organ systems. And then 10x that, you know, 14 quadrillion now are the mitochondrion inside your cells. And so when you start to think about health, you realize I need to be totally integrated into a diverse microbiome all of the time. And I need to be nurturing those tiny little cells. And of course, the glyphosate and Roundup that we talked about is an antibiotic and potently kills everything from mitochondria to the gut bacteria that would transfer all of that light energy from sunshine to plant to human. And so we are dissolving through our chemical agriculture, the very mechanisms of energy transfer of life.
1: Wow, Good God. Like, like, I have so many questions, but the one question which keeps coming to my mind is, how, how did you become so smart? Like I hear you talk and I'm kind of going, there's only one other person that I know that can just talk at such, like, and Russell Brand has some, some form of that. Yours is like 10X with the science and medicine aspect. Like, like, how did you become, have you always been super smart?
0: I I don't know that I'm very smart. I think that uh, what is happening is that, you know, what's happening to me is, is a realization that if, if the human cell is not at the center of human health, then intelligence is not at this let me rephrase that zach is not at the center of zach's intelligence my intelligence is the culminate the the accumulation accumulation the culmination of life within me and part of that is microbial and so the more healthy my food system gets the more vital i become But interestingly, a lot of the science in our lab has shown that the more rich the information from the bacterium that you get, the more bacterial data that you get, the more rigid or more resilient your boundaries become. And so we've spent a lot of time studying the gut boundary, uh, the the tight junctions and this wall between your gut and the immune system, and then the blood-brain barrier between your blood and the neurologic system your kidney tubules between the blood and the, the urine that you would produce, all of these barrier events are actually informed to become more resilient and more intelligent by the amount of microbial information they obtain or, or informed by. And what we started to do about eight years ago was uh, once we discovered these carbon metabolites made by bacteria and fungi in soil, which happened in 2012, We were studying soils of kale and in the soil science i found this large molecule that looked a lot like the chemotherapy i used to make and so we went down on this deep dive of what are those molecules and why are they there and can we extract those and we found that the more diverse the microbiome was the more of these variants of these carbon molecules existed and so each species can make 10 or 15 variants of these the exciting thing was that we knew that the soil systems of 60 million years ago right before the, the last great extinction were the most complex microbial systems ever known on earth and so the dinosaurs occurred because the plant life was so vibrant with that light energy that we described earlier because there were so much plant plastids in those those ferns that grew larger than houses and and there was so much density of microbial intelligence within the soil system that it produced plants that were that vibrant that would support the life of an Allosaurus or a Brontosaurus, you know, four or five times larger than an elephant with a he- with a mouth the size of a horse and it only ate plants. And so that it was able to sustain this massive body with this tiny little mouth, just chewing on plant life because the density of light energy within that food system was so high because the microbial intelligence of the soil was so high. So what we did is we uh, went to the desert in the in the u s, and it, there's plateaus of ores that date back, you know the soil systems. And you can go to sixty million years you know sixty million years ago and find a fossil layer of soil. And that's where we started extracting carbon molecules. And so we are now, you know, eight years into that journey. uh, And we now have all that facility here in Virginia. And so we take fossil soil and we go through a a first of its kind extraction planet in the the world where we do cold water extraction systems in a matter of minutes from that that ore. And we can pull these carbon molecules out. And these carbon molecules then create the intelligence of the human reaction. And so we can put this into gut cells in the lab or we put it into brain cells. We're, We're right now working on a totally revolutionary skin product. Where we put put this stuff next to skin cells, and we get radical rates of repair and healing and restoration, regeneration. And so this has been my journey. I was the very first person to drink that stuff, and back in the day, I was really crazy. I was still stuck in my chemotherapy days, so I was actually doing this stuff intravenously by the leader. And so I was, you know, just absorbing all of this information. And the speed at which I can acquire information eight years later is radically faster because I am now running on 60 million year old dirt intelligence that's never touched humans before. And so if there is a new intelligence within me, I believe it's because humans, you know, only here for 200,000 years have actually never seen our full potential, because we've never seen the full potential of Mother Earth yet. The last great extinction destroyed the soil systems. That's how the big extinction event happened for the dinosaurs. And the Earth has been struggling back to get that same intelligence back in the soil. And then starting about 150 years ago, we started uh, annihilating soil health through overtilling and all of this. And then of course, the 1950s and 60s, the debut of all the chemicals. And so we have depleted the intelligence of our planet. And you can certainly see that in, in American politics. You can certainly see it in you know, our Instagram feeds. Our, our, our general intelligence is dropping, not because we're stupid. We have a massive capacity for intelligence, but we have literally taken away the mechanisms by which energy would be transported in our cells at a higher level. And we're losing the intelligence of the microbiome. We now know that 90% of the serotonin in your body is produced in your gut lining, but it cannot be produced there unless the right bacteria and their information stream is sitting on the surface of the correct endocrine cell inside your gut lining. You can't have neurochemical intelligence until you have a diverse microbiome and its sources of energy. And so When somebody reaches for ION, ION is the name of the product line that we've created. Intelligence of Nature is is the, the acronym there. But Intelligence of Nature was what we wanted to call the product line because it's not me who's intelligent. It's not humans that are intelligent. It is the entire matrix of life on the planet. And the fact that humans now sit at the pinnacle of the ability to absorb or concentrate or systems process all of the intelligence of the life within us makes us intelligent and so when you see a russell brand or you see a deepak chopra or you see any of these thought leaders that are really explosively intelligent if you make them sick for a day if you undermine their health for a couple days they can't do their monologue they can't do the that rate. so our health is vital to At the level of intelligence we put out and our health is now understood to be based in these microbial things. So when somebody reaches for their first bottle of ion, I get goosebumps because I know that that 200,000 year old homo sapien ancestral line is about to be updated with 60 million year old intelligence. that has never touched humanity before. And I believe that we have not seen our potential yet because we have not co-created an earth that would support us to our full potential. But when we go on a regenerative farm, I find that farmers are learning to do that. And I'm finding that the microbes and the intelligence of the soil respond so quickly by our most gentle and our most simple steps towards a co-creative microbial intelligence within our soils. If we put our mind to it over the next 200 years, instead of going extinct, we could build a Garden of Eden that supports a soil system that rivals that of 60 million years ago, and we will birth children so far more intelligent than anything we've ever seen before. We will become a different species in our capacity for intelligence if we will integrate our, our, our sense of intelligence, that, that hubris that we have that this is human intelligence and surrender that to the potential that this is life intelligence. And we are given the opportunity through our, the gray matter of our brains to be the systems processing unit, the central processing unit chip. We could be the computer chip to process the intelligence of Mother Nature herself, and in that, we will express something glorious.
1: Wow. What a link! Jeez, the, you're like you're like a master linker. Yeah, you can link things. Okay, you've got one. I've no, been... I like if I'm trying to disseminate that and to try to get that down into my grey matter in a very more in in a less in a more practical daily thing. Because for me, my mind is you know running at a like a little a hamster on a wheel trying to keep up with you. And if I'm to to lay it down in speak that my mind can get, in essence, what I'm hearing is that we tend to believe we're self-determining, sentient beings, but we're hugely reliant on the health and the diversity of our bacteria. And that's so much of how we relate and how much we can Feel. interact with life, to feel, to be intelligent, to be kind of self-determining humans is dependent on the health of our bacteria and our in essence, our relationship with nature. And at the moment, so many of us are living in urban environments detached from us being mammals. And as a result, our microbiome are becoming a lot smaller. We're becoming a lot more isolated. We're becoming less part of communities. And as a result, we're becoming more sick am i correct possibly less intelligent yeah back to from back to the microbial intelligence analogies
0: I, i think that's quite literal i think our intelligence does drop and it's not hard to see this uh you know in the hospital system i see this on a daily basis and so if you if you take somebody out of their home environment and you put them in a hospital where they can't walk they're in a hospital bed they can't see sunlight and they can't access their normal food system. Instead, they're given this crap food that's you know highly processed, just junk food. Their red jello is a common food, food product on a, on a hospital plate in the United States. It's, it's chemicals, it's junk, it's unbelievable. This is what we do. But what you see on day one is somebody who comes in and can tell you their entire history. You know, this is where I come from. This is how I developed you know, my diseases years ago, and now I have pneumonia. And they tell you the whole story by day three, they can't sleep. They have insomnia. They haven't had a good night's sleep in three days. They haven't touched sunlight. They haven't touched real food. They haven't moved. Now they're having a hard time, you know, putting a full sentence together. And they're they're starting to not even recognize loved ones within five days. Uh, they they start to develop psychosis. They're seeing things. They're hearing voices. And so in that journey of a you know patient coming in sick and then gets sicker in the hospital and ends up in the ICU not only is it intelligence it's consciousness it's self-awareness starts to erode so quickly as we become detached from nature and if you look at western civilization we're some version of icu patient in our daily lives now right we're separated from sun we don't touch the the mother earth and her intelligence the electrical potential within the surface of our soils we wear rubber-soled shoes we drive around in plastic off-gassing cars we go to an office and sit in a cubicle that's off-gassing, you know, carcinogens from the carpet. And, and then we go get it in the car and we drive to the grocery store and buy a bunch of processed foods that's full. And so you are some version of that decaying intelligence, that that loss of consciousness, that loss of self-identity that you would see in an extreme way in an ICU or a hospital bed. You're some version of that in your daily activities if you're living a normal Western Civ lifestyle. Well, this is, this is, oh no, I
1: want to. Can I wanna ask? Funny, ask that one that you had earlier. So yeah. I went, Like we talked with our friend Dr. Alan Desmond, and he's a gastroenterologist. And we did a great chat with him. And I was I was so curious about understanding this microbiome because my limited previous knowledge was that okay, there's loads of little things that live in your gut, and they're they're bacteria, they're fungi, they're archaea, which is a new word that I've just learned, and they're like little single cell bacteria. Or microorganisms. And they they existed since, as you said, since life exists in the planet. They were the first living entity. And like, I've often heard you and many other people say, we are all one and we're all interlinked. And I've never quite understood it. I've always kind of gone, oh, that sounds like some kind of woo-woo, a little bit woo-woo or whatever. And then when I started talking with Dr. Al about microorganisms and our microbiome, I started to realize that as we've discussed here, we're in a symbiotic relationship with nature and with one another. And there seems to be some constant communication between these microorganisms, as you said, our microbial intelligence, that there's some, like, as Stephen said, like, I'm trying to put my words on this here. You you put the idea that me and Dave are identical twins, so we're genetically the same. However, because we live in different homes and we have different families, um, <clears throat> as in my my wife and my kids and Dave's partner and his kids, they're, we're bacterially quite different. So I think what he's saying is that are we the 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 notion of that we're all one is that ultimately that it's our microbes and our bacteria that are helping be this membrane with which connects us. Almost all. Like, like almost like, like oh no, I've got like the internet. Uh, <laughs> like like a kind of like like a human internet where we're all able to so. And I I got what even better. Like mushrooms in the mycelian network and their ability to share information and to share nutrients, is it similar that our microbial and our sense of our microbiomes are all in essence in some weird way connected? And they communicate. Do they communicate? That's part of the question.
0: They do communicate. And that's actually what these carbon molecules that we are extracting from fossil soils are. And so these carbon metabolites, when put into a liquid system, either your bloodstream or water, whatever it is, same difference, uh, water in both situations. But once those carbon molecules align with H2O, they function as a wireless communication network. And so just like the wireless communication that keeps your cell phone, you know, you can pick it up and call Zach in Virginia. No problem. Takes less than a split second. And we're talking on the phone. There's no delay. It's it's a miracle. I, I still wonder at my own cell phone. It doesn't make sense that it works so well. In the same way, a microbe can develop an idea, which might be. I'm going to produce this nutrient and it's producing this nutrient. It puts it out into the environment with a stream of carbon information that says, I am sending out this nutrient if anybody needs it. And that carbon cascade of information, which transfers electrons across water very quickly, you get this wireless communication out across distances. And then some other, you know, microbe or human gut cell says, Oh yeah, hell yeah. I need that little, you know, manganese that was just released and it'll grab that and, by the way, I'm producing this, so I'm gonna send that out too. So if you need that, you can so there's this cooperative production, but it was always joined with communication. And so the wireless communication network, it turns out, that keeps one human cell connected to the other is actually microbial communication. So the microbes seem to produce the wireless communication network for the human body, for the earthworm, for you know, XYZ mammal we are actually you know coursing through this information stream all the time if there's plenty of microbial life around us and so and that is quite literal as far as like how far reaching uh, it gets pretty trippy Uh, there's something called quorum sensing that i want to mention that is a a phenomenon that we see in in the microbiome so when you were talking about the mycelial network or this human internet of information that connects all of us it seems to be uh, demonstrated in this phenomenon called quorum sensing. And the quorum is a description of when you get to a, some level of threshold of population diversity and population number of microbes, you suddenly get this hyper intelligence. And suddenly the whole population goes into a co-creative process that makes something much greater than any sum of the parts. So there's this true synergistic Development where it's not like A plus B plus C species doing stuff. It's suddenly like a new species because it's acting in this hyperintelligence that transcends the elements within. And that's what I get excited about around this human moment, which is at our tipping point of, of life on earth as we dive into the sixth great extinction, as we're just starting to scratch the surface of the potential that if we were to do a regenerative food system powered by extreme focus on diversifying and maximizing the microbiome within our soil systems, we will certainly get quorum sensing at the soil level. But then that is immediately going to turn into quorum sensing above the soil system with the plant life within it. And so our trees will speak more clearly to each other. If you haven't read Secret Life of Trees, you got to read that book. You know, it's incredible to see how tree species cooperate to thrive in soils that they literally can't live in because the other species around them can produce the nutrients they need. Even though they can't get it from the soil they're in, they'll receive it from their neighbors. And so there's this great care among the trees. That's quorum sensing at the plant life level. And then I wonder what happens when we start quorum sensing with dolphins. What happens when humans can communicate more clearly with our thought processes with dolphins, with the manta ray, with the sea turtles, with the the antelope in the fields, with the, the wolf in the Siberian you know, forest, what happens when we start to be able to quorum sense as mammals? And to do that, we're gonna to have to quiet the human mind. We're gonna to have to listen to the nature that we are within because if we continue to let our distracting thoughts, our you know, manifest destiny kind of behavior of we are the, the penultimate creatures and therefore we deserve to control and extract and destroy the life around us, if we humble ourselves to the point where we shut the hell up for a second and listen, and I encourage you all to do this. Maybe, maybe have, have your group do this next time you guys go swimming in the morning. Instead of listening to the waves, ask them to extend their attention and listen into the ocean and listen to the, the, the fish, the whales, the dolphins within those oceans And just open up your spirit, open up your mind's eye to the possibility that we could quorum sense with the macro life on earth, as well as we do the micro life within us. And let's start to see what visions we have for a future when we open ourselves up to that quorum sensing. And so there is absolutely a network of information that streams through the life around us, life within us, and that we can become that hyper-conscious, hyper-intelligent, Player or co worker, co creator within that environment, if we maintain that humble listening status as a species for the first time, stop telling the world what we see and start listening to what she might see. And and we'll we'll see ourselves differently in that internet of intelligence. And we will see our our cooperative and giving capacity increase just as the mycelium would in the soils that you see there. we definitely live within it, and we definitely are, are not unique consciousness. I don't believe I can have a unique Zach idea. I, I can express an idea that's emerging from the collective consciousness of humanity, from the collective intelligence of the soil within us. I can express that, but at the moment that I say that's a Zach idea and I'm going to go patent that and all that, I'm part of the, the decay. I'm part of the, the, the diminutive. I'm part of the low vibrational expression of intelligence. If I say, I just thought of something that might change the world, I want to bring that to humanity and I express it in any opportunity I have. It it creates the giving tree within me, right? It creates this new energetic flow. And as soon as I give, it opens up my roots to receive. And so there's a beautiful system of of interplay. And so that's what I I think we should start creating social experience around together is how acutely... Can we tune into the greater intelligence around us? How good can we listen to that internet of information? And how deep can we make our roots to communicate with that mycelial network? That's going to just change everything. And uh, I, I'm encouraged because we have to change everything. Because if we do even 50% of what we're doing, we still destroy the Earth and we go into the great extinction. So we have to change everything now. And Mother Nature is waiting to play that game with us through this incredible internet.
1: Wow, how's that? Quorum sensing. I think I've only heard you mention the word quorum sensing before. And like, it almost sounds like it's developing. Like we've all watched enough sci-fi movies that it's almost like developing some kind of deeper. um, It's removing, ultimately, kind of making peace with our own ego and starting to stop thinking like individuals as in Steve and David. Zach had a great idea. That was a great monologue, Zach. Whereas it's ultimately realizing that we're fu- to be human is to be fully interdependent on life and to be so dependent on so many aspects of life. And ultimately that to remove ourselves from this oh, egoic nature that I am great, I am brilliant. We are the penultimate species, as you say, and it's a sense of just relaxing into the kind of reliance that we have on our microbial health and these just infinite species that support us to continue to exist in a way and to it's, tap into their intelligence. It's such a different way to get your head around it. Like, my, like that, my, the hamster in my brain is running, chur- churning the wheel really quickly here just to kind of keep up. But maybe it's about ultimately about turning off this kind of idea of what we think intelligence is. And as you're saying, quieten down and try to connect to that quieter part within each of us. It's not even within us. It's within the greater world yeah. around us. But like it has to start within us because my own, at the moment, my limited awareness is in this body and whatever. I am i haven't developed my superpowers yet, but hopefully they're coming. Okay. Uh, I, I know we, we only have a limited time. To There's a couple other ones I really want to talk with you. So one, loneliness is an epidemic right now. And it's something that many of us have all experienced, especially during this global pandemic. And at the same time, our microbiomes are significantly smaller, they're less exposed to nature. Can you talk briefly about the connection between our diminishing microbiome or diminishing communities uh, that we experience in terms of our social interactions and how that's affecting our and overall And our diminishing health. connection with nature, really, yes, so it seems.
0: Yeah, so the origin of new viruses, if we want to think about a pandemic and the common narrative thing is we're told a new virus has come upon us and, and it's threatening our health and it's going to attack us new viruses are always, uh, you know, anything coming out of nature is always for the intention of creating more biodiversity and more adaptation. And the viruses are the mechanism by which that life intention happens. And so when you start to put extinction level stress on a population of single microbes from an antibiotic, or pigs in in slaughterhouses under the intense pressure of the chemical environment they're in, or the intense you know, chemical warfare type environment of a cornfield, all of those environments are examples of chemical pressure that's forcing death on a, a large intelligence of life. And that intelligence of life's response is to create adaptation events at the genetic level. So that it starts recoding the genome, starts making lots and lots of different variants of the genes to try to find an escape path to try, try to find an adaptation out of the toxic environment to survive. So mother nature is always trying for survival through adaptation and biodiversification. And so when we see new viruses, we can be confident we've put a stress stressor on the planet. If new viruses are necessary, it means that there's new life potential to, to bypass some threat that we currently have. If we look at the epicenter of the last pandemic, if the common narrative is correct, it was in you know, Hunan province in the middle of China. And in that province is the largest pork production facilities in the world. We could produce more pork for the, the global food chain in that province than anywhere else on earth. And the pig stool that is produced through these factory farming situations is uh, same situation in the United States. Our biggest plants here are in North Carolina, just south of me here, and these are lakes of pig stool that have to be. Uh, they build these large uh, retainer systems that create lakes of pig stool that can be, you know, hundreds of millions and hundreds of billions of gallons of pig stool over the decades that accumulate. It's illegal to transport that pig stool across state lines because it's so toxic. There's so many chemical residues. Uh, severe uh, drug resistant anti uh, or drug resistant bacterium from how much antibiotics are put into those pigs, et cetera. So it's this kind of chemical warfare environment. And you can imagine these these lakes of pig stool are are all of these bacteria trying to survive in this this toxic stew. And so they're putting out an amazing amount of genetic information in the form of bacteriophage, which are viruses that are are born from genetics of, of single cell microbes. So you got all this genetic information flowing into the environment out of this existential threat uh, to, to the, the microbes. And then the pigs themselves, as they suffer and are nearly dead by the time we butcher them, they're putting out genetic stress into the meat that they would then go on to end up in, a, in pulled pork here in, in Carolina or something like that. You've got, you know, this level of stress in the microbes, level of stress in the meat, multicellular organisms. And that the result is this genomic, you know, scream for help. And what it's looking for is changes in, in in other, you know, cell systems to get away from the the threat, get away from the pain and suffering that's been created by the chemicals stew. And so the the pandemic can map right back to the highest, most intense stress levels in, in the food system. It's also the the most in, incredible density of of spraying of life state in the world is in the same you know, Hunan province of China there. And so we created the perfect incubator for new genomic stressors. And of course, it's the same kind of region of the world where we get the a- annual flu pandemics from and everything else. Every year there's new strains of vac- viruses coming out of China and South Asia because of the level of stress we put on the ecosystems there. So those then travel through the world And it would be one thing if they just traveled naturally, but they no longer do, because it turns out that viruses glob onto carbon particulate in the atmosphere caused by uh, air pollution. And so this carbon uh, in the air pollution is called PM2.5. And the PM2.5 binds viruses in great density. And so no longer is that genetic information traveling to go and form lung cells or other cells in, in intelligent species all over the world it's clumped in almost a chemical warfare type process now where you have this this overload of genetic information bound to pm2.5 so then that floats through the atmosphere and covers the whole earth the whole story of like you know it's you know this narrative that we got was that these airplanes went from hunan to italy and to seattle washington united states and created new epicenters of the pandemic that might have been true in the first 2 or 3 days that Air, airplane travel could somehow speed up the spread of this. But if you had just waited two weeks, it would have arrived at all of those shores through the air as it circulates around the earth. And so within a, two months of a pandemic, the entire globe is covered in the potential for everybody to get sick because there's enough of this PM 2.5 with this chemical warfare type, you know, download of genetic information and it's carrying toxins. And so PM2.5 is where you bind the toxins of air pollution, namely cyanide. And cyanide is the thing that causes uh, death in humans. It's the famous poison that dates back centuries. Wanna kill somebody, put some cyanide in in their food and they'll die almost instantly. The way in which they die from cyanide poisoning is exactly how we saw people dying in ICUs at the beginning of this pandemic. A great study was published in JAMA that looked at 5,700 patients, 5,700 patients admitted to New York hospitals at the height of the the U.S. pandemic last year, and it showed all of their admission uh, vital signs and laboratory values. And what you saw was something amazing is that 5,700 patients in severe sickness, 80% mortality rates, did not show up with fever or white blood cell count or any other symptoms of infection. Instead, they showed up with hypoxia with normal lungs. So the lung x-rays and CT scans initially are totally clear, no signs of pneumonia, no signs of viral infection, but they show up with liver failure and blue skin. So they're hypoxic. They can't get oxygen transfer from their blood to their tissue. And they, they, they are going into this hypoxic injury at the liver and within another 24 hours, the kidneys, and then within three days, the lungs themselves are having a hypoxic injury and start to fill with fluid. And then they die from secondary pneumonias because when you put fluid in the lung, bacteria get in there, you get secondary pneumonias. And so what we have evidence there is that they weren't dying of of coronavirus. They were dying from hypoxia. So that condition is called histotoxic hypoxia. And what causes that is largely cyanide and other toxins that bind PM2.5 in the atmosphere. So coronavirus if involved didn't cause the death but what had happened is that this natural toxin in our environment that was in northern italy in the high densities was in new york and all of the big epicenters around the world it suddenly poisoned the population because this naturally occurring relatively benign coronavirus comes through and acts as a delivery system of high doses of the PM2.5, because coronavirus is unique that it binds the receptor in our lung surface and then in our vascular surface called the ACE2 receptor. And so it was almost like a Trojan horse experience where the the virus was accidentally dragging cyanide into the bloodstream because of the the co-binding to PM2.5. So to die from coronavirus, you had to have high PM2.5 levels. High genomic stressors in the environment, such that there'd be a lot of virus there to begin with. And then you had to have vulnerability in the human that that received that information. So they had to have vascular disease, diabetes, or chronic kidney disease to have a high likelihood of mortality. And a large reason for that is not just because they're they have a weakened immune system, have weak you know, resilience to cyanide poisoning. They also are on two medications that will speed up the absorption of coronavirus. And those are ACE inhibitors and uh, statin drugs and those two drugs have to be put on every patient with diabetes heart disease or kidney disease that's standard therapies and if you don't put your patient on those then you're you're not practicing standards of medicine you could be sued for malpractice all of that and so we had to put people on medications that would increase the receptors for for SARS-CoV-2 virus and so now you have SARS-CoV-2 virus variant going in the atmosphere in in chemical clumps around PM 2.5 dragging cyanide into these patients that were hypersensitized to absorb as much as possible of that that poisoning event. And so that was the first few months. What then happened over the globe is that we started to see SARS-CoV-2 experience all over the place in areas that had lower PM 2.5 levels, low cyanide levels. And what then progressed was a normal viral experience. You get a little achy, you get a fever, you have a normal kind of flu-like experience. But you don't show up with hypoxia you don't show up with liver failure you don't show up with respiratory failure because you're not the one that got poisoned you just are having a viral experience so we had two events happen on the planet over the last 24 months one was a global poisoning from our own behavior of carbon particulate and cyanide in the atmosphere and the other was a relatively benign virus that wasn't killing people but was doing some unique things and disrupts those na- nasal sinuses uniquely especially if we have leaky gut leaky membranes then we get, you know, an an increase in headache, we might have a a profound, you know, inflammatory condition for a few months afterwards, but two events happened, and and we keep confusing the two as one. And so then we think SARS-CoV-2 is this, this super scary, fatal virus, when in fact, it's just emphasizing the toxicity of our environment to a small portion of the population that was dying of histotoxic hypoxia, not from the virus so those are the the journey of the last year and how we kind of set the table for this pandemic to occur the scary thing to me is if you look at the speed at which we are destroying soil water and air systems we're going to set ourselves up for much more catastrophic events in the future this one didn't actually cause any dent in human human population right this was not anything like the 1917 flu or the you know, the, the, the great you know black death in Europe in the, a couple hundred years ago, nothing like that. This one didn't even, wasn't even a ditzel on the radar of, of human expansion and population. What is gonna be a ditzel is our response to it. And so uh, what we did in response to this thing is we ran away from nature. And so instead of saying, oh my gosh, we, we are a weakened and, and isolated species suffering because we're not in touch with our microbiome, that we're vulnerable to these events, Instead, we ran away and did the wrong thing. We we squashed away in our homes. We got away from the sunshine. We stopped breathing fresh air and the microbial intelligence there. We stopped touching the earth. We stopped touching each other. We stopped hugging each other. And hugs are one of the most potent antivirals out there. It turns out that if you get seven hugs a day, you have 40%, 30% less flu the following or during that flu season. And so hugs and, and human touch and the Proximity of other people's microbiome in their intelligence puts our immune system in a hyper-intelligent state. We did the opposite. We said social distance, don't touch each other, you know, be afraid of each other, run away into your homes, get get more sequestered from nature instead of into nature. Put a mask on, which now means that you're you're rebreathing into your deep respiratory system, sinus mucosa, which should never have ended up in your lungs. And we're seeing now a bunch of children with major depression disorder. In something called pandas, which is almost a psychosis that can occur when strep and staph bacteria get into the guts of children. And so we're seeing a pandemic in the United States of children with pandas, which is this, you know, it looks like major depression, anxiety disorder, sleep disorder, but it's in fact it's strep and staph bacteria from the sinuses that are setting up shop inside the gut because we're making those children wear masks all day long. And so they're rebreathing air that's full of microbes that should have never ended up in their gut or in their lungs and the rest. And so we are doing exactly the opposite thing again and again because of the paradigm that we have which is nature is against us we need, if nature starts to attack we need to run away that's the mentality we're currently in and until we rewrite humans into nature until we start to realize that we are part of that nature and any separation from her will weaken us we will continue to do the exactly wrong thing in response to something like a pandemic
1: like it seems like everything you said there that I- seems like we've create, created the perfect circumstances for more zoonotic diseases. Like it seems like there's, we still have just as many stressed environments with chemical, just chemical Exposure. cesspools of stuff going on that. Yeah. Can, yeah. can I tell a, an interesting story to go off on a, on a, on a, <laughs> a slight side tangent? Um, I remember listening to an interview you did with, I think it was called Dale High Tree. Big Tree. What was it? Dale Big Tree, I think. Dale Big Tree. Okay. Well, anyway, a guy called Dale, something related to Big Tree. We listened to the uh, an interview you did, and I remember it got very technical and I didn't understand a huge amount of it. So I asked a friend Sean, Sean, will you listen to that? Sean's a doctor and said, Will you listen to that and just like explain it to me? Cause I, I don't really get it. And he said, Yeah, cool. And we met up kind of outside and we kinda had a social distance, chat about it. Um, and it was wonderful. And then next week, um, Al said, can we do that again? I'll pick a podcast and we'll sit and we'll discuss it. So I'll picked one on the Blue Zones, you know, Dan Buettner, and we discussed that. And uh, we've been doing it for about a year now, kind of meeting up, someone will pick a podcast or do, we did it on Zoom during the pandemic and discuss various different topics. And it was a great way to build up our own microbiome of thoughts and to kind of understand different topics. Uh, and anyway, you started that. but But in terms of, so going forward and how, it was a friend, Paul Grimes, kind of suggested asking this, what would your three wishes for humanity be to kind of, as you said, we're kind of at a, a at a point a of where, point or where which, we're starting one of the sixth mass extinction you're saying. Events. Yeah, and we're kind of at a crossroads as a species and we've had the wonderful, I shouldn't call it the wonderful opportunity, but we've had the opportunities to kind of, commerce has slowed down for the last year. We've almost, it's been like an opportunity for us to sit and reflect on how we're living and you know, for many of us, it's been an opportunity to kind of recalibrate and reprioritize what was really important. What would your suggestion or three suggestions that you'd have for anyone listening that kind of goes, my God, everything you said so, has so blown me away. I don't know where to go. How do I apply this to my everyday life? So three wishes for humanity and three wishes that you think anyone can do at home.
0: All right. Very good. Three wishes for humanity. That's a great question. My first wish is we would stop seeing ourselves separate from nature. I, I wish that we could understand human life within the context of the soil, the air, and the and the water systems that we exist within, that we exist within us and that we are an expression of. So wish one, reintegrate our definition and experience of humanity into nature. Number two, my wish is that we would humble ourselves to listen to the intelligence. Uh, within us and around us, and to do that, we're going to have to come to terms with the fact that human thought is the really the mechanism by which we've destroyed the planet. It, it is our human ingenuity and the direction we pointed it that has created the innovations of oil and gas industries, pharmaceutical industries, you know, the the wired internet, the white the white noise that we have from five G and all of this stuff now we have turned our intuition towards an environment that is engineering a future away from nature and is in conflict with her at every turn. And so we need to release our human intention for control of nature and start to ask nature to express herself through our ingenuity towards that other future. And so that's my second wish, I guess. My third wish is that we would start to see one another for our unique qualities rather than for our differences. And uh, I'm shocked and dismayed and uh, almost a sense of hopelessness for humanity when I see today's cancellation type behavior and the amount of, of suppression of speech, suppression of freedom of speech that we are seeing today. It's certainly startling on the science side to see people terrified in the science realm of having an open dialogue about the science about the pandemic or vaccines or genetically modified you know injections that we're doing to each other now it scares me that we're we're censoring science but it scares me much more so that i'm watching humans start to censor each other in the most you know violent fashions over the most skewed of information pathways. And so this cancellation environment is symptomatic that not only have we seen ourselves separate from nature, but we are deeper and deeper diving into a time where we're seeing ourselves separate from our fellow man. And it is in that kind of polarized environment that we will finally destroy one another. And uh, so if we need to, you know, do that to, to, to cr- force our own extinction, so we stop destroying mother earth. I can come to terms with that. I, I can see that we need to go. I, I can see that we are the scourge on the planet right now, and and our disappearance would be a blessing for the life that would come after us, which will be extraordinary, by the way. Uh, whatever comes after this extinction will will be of the highest intelligence that we've seen on the planet, because that's what's happened after every other extinction. Life always comes back more biodiverse and more intelligent with each extinction event. The last extinction did not inspire Mother Earth to go create the dinosaurs again. Instead, she created birds, mammals, you know, uh, deciduous trees. And so the, the earth in her intelligence is l- looking forward to the next brilliant move that she will make after this extinction event. But if we humble ourselves to the point where we would stop being that destructive force, if we would first humble ourselves and rewrite our human into nature, and then we would start to think cooperatively about our intuition and let mother nature express herself through us instead of exert our will against her and then we would stop seeing each other as different or as uh, you know as an opposition to one another we will express something much different uh, for the future and that that's the future i would like my children to birth their children into that's the that's the environment i would love to see what the ramifications of the next 40 generations of human would look like in that kind of trajectory But if we don't do all three of those things, then then we should disappear as fast as possible before we take all of life with us. And um, and it's okay Either way, I don't feel I'm starting to get to the point where I don't feel emotionally attached to either of those outcomes. It's okay if we disappear. Uh, I'm I'm, my third subspecialty is in hospice medicine. And so I spent an inordinate amount of time at bedsides of people who are dying. And it is the most beautiful thing. Death is is not an endpoint. It is a rebirth. That happens for each of us, and our our full power to live to our fullest comes the moment we stop fearing death. And when we when we live so abundantly in the day that we would be okay to die again tomorrow, then we live differently. We, we choose differently, mm-hmm. and so that's what will result from the three wishes: is we will lose our our fear of death, and we will start to live life so vitally and so present in the moment so integrated into the the voice of mother nature so listening to that for our own wisdom and our own expression of her intelligence that we will we will grace the world with our presence instead of destroy her in that space and it will be through that death experience of coming to terms with what we've done and not having any emotional guilt or pity on us or anything else. We just need to let that go. Surrender that, surrender our own death, our own extinction, come to terms with it, and then let go of it and see if we can rebirth in the body before we go. And that's what a lot of my hospice patients do. They, they come to such clarity when they let go of the pharmaceutical crutches and they, they let go of the, the belief that they have to be alive in a year to see something happen for their loved ones. And they just say, I'm here right now. And they start to speak to their loved ones much differently. And I've seen estranged relationships heal in a matter of minutes, that it was screwed up relationships for decades, maybe 50 years, suddenly heal in an instant when one glimpses true love in the words, true surrender, true care, true nurture in the words of their mother who's dying. And suddenly everything is right and, and healing happens in, in an instant, 50 years of damage cleared in an instant. When the right voice is expressed from the core of that individual, speaking now from soul instead of from their damaged human journey and their damaged human ego, they speak from the soul space. And in that moment, that child hears how much their mother's soul loved them. It heals all of the past wrongs, all of the things that have been damaging in the past. And so what will we utter to one another as humanity? What will we utter to the sea turtles that are are on the brink? What will we say to the whales that are nearly gone? What will we utter to heal the the decades of destruction, the centuries of extraction and and exploitation of nature? Because nature is built on resilience and grace. And that grace is one that can heal so fast when we speak from that safe space, that soul space, that uninjured space within us. And we can heal so fast. And so my hope for each of you is that the three things that you will do today is sit in silence in nature. If you will get outside, if, if you don't have you know great outdoors to get to, if you just sit on the back stoop or whatever it is and watch sunset this evening with a different set of eyes, with a different set of ears. Stop listening to the hamster in your head and start listening to the vibration of Mother Earth herself. What messages will she bring to you? Come to terms that you are on hospice, not just as you, but as a species. Come to terms that we are dying right now through a lack of connection to Mother Nature, through a chemical food system, through an antibiotic-ridden response to a a pandemic. We're spraying bleach into airplanes, into streets. We're spraying insecticides and weird herbicides to try to kill viruses that aren't even alive we are doing the wrong things and we are distancing ourselves further from that nature. And so we are in our death throes as a species. And so we must come to the silence of that hospice experience. We must come to our own bedside now and listen differently today. And so the three things that you will do today is be in silence. You will breathe mother nature in and you will let her express herself through you in your dreams tonight. And let's, Let's think of a different, let's dream up a better future for us
1: tomorrow. Beautiful. I love that, Zach. I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Absolutely fabulous.
0: I think um
1: it reminds me of the importance to just remember we're all going to die and just live, you know, to try to try to live with that. And what's closest. important, really. Zach, you are amazing. Thank yeah. you so much for taking the time and sharing your your wisdom and the wisdom of your microbes and the wisdom
0: of the microbes. Your microbial intelligence you. was
1: on fire today, Zach. <laughs> your mitochondria were going off.
0: <laughs> That's right. A full on solar event today. Well, you guys draw the best out of everybody you touch. I love the energy you put into the world. Certainly a thriving mit- mitochondrial population within the two of you. And uh, I I really wonder at uh, just the the genius that comes out of the two of you together. And it's obvious that each of you are spectacular in your own homes. Uh, When you are apart, you are incredible fathers and and spouses and uh, you're incredible uh, inspiration in the kitchen all all the time, obviously. But it's when you guys are together that we get to see quorum sensing. We get to see that amazing twin connection happen between the two of you. And it reminds me of what we're all, all... potential of we could all connect on the same level that dave and steve connect on we we could connect on that kind of level as a species and that that gives me hope so you guys keep connected keep pouring joy into the world uh, my favorite picture so far is is the uh the one with the the plum uh covering up one of your asses I like you can never tell i love that man. i love that shot so brilliantly done um, but uh Keep doing the mute shots and keep diving into cold water in the morning with your community and and you will uh, paint a better future for all of us. Thank Thank you, you, Zach.
1: You're amazing. Thanks so much for taking the time and, um, you know, really appreciate you. Looking forward to hanging out again. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Zach, has a phenomenal capacity to just share information. I don't know about you, but. I feel like I have to listen to that a number of times to really try to just let it sit in with my greater microbiota so I can make sense of it. Yeah, really, it's all back to the microbiome. That was like a nature, 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 nature square. Zach is phenomenal. Do check him out on Instagram. He has his product Ion. It sounds pretty deadly. Um. Thank yeah, you for he, he's, got, he's got a charity called Farmer's Footprint which is really really good which we touched on there which is all about helping farmers learn to transition to regenerative agriculture where it builds up the soil microbiome and stuff anyway super interesting man I hope thanks for making it this far we're most grateful and thanks for your support in terms of this podcast for um, subscribing we and- love it it gives us such an opportunity to talk with phenomenal people that we've admired and just to try to you know to try to so so thanks ourselves. to you so thanks to you genuinely for letting us have this opportunity. Yeah, so, so yeah. please let us know on social what you enjoyed, what your thoughts, any guests you'd like in the future and lastly, wishing you a great day ahead. Lots of love. Cheers. Cheers bye. bye.